Open your Bibles, if you're not already there, to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we're going to be reading and looking at about 16 verses. So I'm going to read those, and then we're going to find out how these apply to us and, and what they mean. It's the first 16 verses in chapter 19. I will read them, and you can follow along in your copy of the word. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, He was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus said to him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been granted to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him on the judgment seat. I'm sorry, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let me pray before we dive into this text. Lord, your word is perfectly true. Lord, no one can stand in judgment over us, over it, for it stands in judgment over us. It stands in authority over us. As we come to your word, I pray that you would find us humble with our minds open to you, ready to submit and to respond to your word according to the work of the Spirit that speaks to us and confirms what our minds are hearing. So I pray you would transform your people this morning, Lord. So I ask for help and humility and truth as I speak your word this morning. I ask In Jesus' name and according to his glory, amen. So this text, 
uh, a lengthy one, tells the climax of the confrontation between the Jews and Pilate, which had been escalating throughout the morning of the Friday of Passover. It's becoming very heated, as you can see. It's not just one or two little exchanges. It's starting to become confrontational. It's starting to become heated and building up to the point where there is shouting and to the point where there is multiple contradictions one of each other, where the Jews contradict Pilate and Pilate contradicts them and they're challenging each other. In this text, we see a conflicted and wavering and unstable Pilate. And so Pilate is trying to release Jesus and he has the inability to carry out his own judgment because of the pressure that he feels to appease the Jewish audience. So that's what's happening with Pilate. We see the Jews who are bent on an outcome of death. They won't be persuaded by Pilate's verdict, even though they brought Jesus to Pilate to be judged, if you remember. They brought him there. But they're bent on death. They don't listen to Pilate. They don't care what Pilate's verdict is. They came not for a trial, but for blood. They came for an execution and the worst kind that history has to offer offer in, in the Roman crucifixion. But in the midst of this crooked and chaotic process, the purposes and goodness of God are unstoppably at work to bring about his redemptive Purposes. Now, that's an important phrase, and I don't want it to just pass over your mind. The Bible contains what many theologians call his historic redemptive plan, which means that from the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve first turned away from God's commandment, God had begun and promised a redemptive work. God's historic redemptive plan began in Genesis chapter 3, and is ongoingly unfolding throughout the course of history, through the people of Israel, and through the aliens and sojourners that were brought in, and then eventually to the Jews with the coming of the Messiah, and then to the Gentiles after the rejection of the Jews. But that's where I'm going with this text. It's the ongoing, unfolding, redemptive plan of God that is taking place that we see um, almost a hinge point here in our text this morning. The, the scriptural context that we find ourselves in is the Friday morning after Passover. Now, Passover uh, can be misunderstood because it's very often combined with or spoken of at the same time as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These were two distinct celebrations, but they're, they happen so, uh, they're mentioned so often together and, and they take place at the same time, sort of, that they're almost seen as bywords for each other. It's almost the same celebration. The Passover feast kicked off or began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was the starting point. And the Passover feast, we think, took place on the Thursday night. Because Matthew says, or Mark says, that Jesus took the Passover meal with his disciples. And then on Friday morning, remember they went out to pray after the Passover meal? And they went out to the garden where Judas came with the authorities and they arrested Jesus. And then throughout the night, the Jews tried Jesus. They had a court for him where they declared him guilty of death. And then when it says when morning came, they brought him to Pilate. I'm not sure if when it says when morning came, he's speaking of midnight 
like in our clocks today, it says a.m. when it strikes midnight. It might have been at midnight when they came to Pilate. It might have also might have been 6 a.m., depending on whether or not John was using a Jewish form of time-telling or Roman uh, form of time-telling. But the point was that they came to Pilate after they had tried him themselves. And so the Friday, um, what, the, what we now call Good Friday, is when Jesus was tried and crucified by the Romans, by the Gentiles. Now, Passover, we have to remember, is a, is a feast, and it's a celebration that the Jews had, the people of God. It was to commemorate and celebrate that time when they were slaves in Egypt, and God sent 10 plagues to Pharaoh, who was their slave master. And God kept telling Pharaoh through Moses, you need to let these people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and said, no, after, over and over and over again. And God kept sending plagues. And then he promised the worst plague of all, which was going to be the death of the firstborn of everything, not only of each family, but also of cattle and livestock and all of these things. And God promised a plague of death if Pharaoh did not respond, and Pharaoh didn't. But God said, you will be spared this plague if you slaughter a lamb and you paint its blood on your doorpost and you stay in your house. And then when the angel of death comes to deliver the plague, if he sees the blood of the lamb on your door, he will pass over your house and you won't suffer God's judgment. This is the Passover feast. And so the Jews commemorated this year after year by slaughtering a lamb and roasting it and eating it. And so unbelieving Egyptians who ignored this warning, they were judged and their firstborn child was killed. And even in the, uh, I think it's a Disney or DreamWorks film, Prince of Egypt, they show this, they, they tell this story, which is kind of amazing if you think about it. But this is what the, the people of God were commemorating at this time. And, and Jesus in the midst of this feast, of this celebration, is now standing trial exactly as he predicted in front of a Gentile court. And he's awaiting his condemnation. And so this is the temporal context of what's going on here. And so our text, I've really d- divided into three headings. And I've, t- and I've made the headings specific verses that point us to what's going on. Now, I-, I chose the verse for our first heading, Hail the King of the Jews, which is a phrase here uttered by the Romans. The Roman soldiers, hail the king of the Jews. This is a heading that we need to pay attention to. It's a verse that you need to almost highlight in your Bible as a pointer, as an indicator as to where John is taking the text. It says that Pilate took Jesus out and flogged him. Verse 2, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. And then they came out and they were saying, hail the king of the Jews. So Jesus' physical torment begins to roll in. The Jews were the first to strike him on the face when they were offended at the way he spoke to the high priest. And now it begins to roll in in a more significant and sustained way. It says that he was flogged. Now, there's actually three types of flogging. This is very likely the, the least severe of the three types. Um, Pilate allowed this to happen for strategic reasons. But it says in, in the other Gospels that he was flogged after he was pro- it was pronounced that he would be crucified. That was the type of flogging to make you as weak as possible. And Jesus received that second flogging, probably in order so that he would, they would make sure that he would die before the Sabbath. But this flogging is 
a lesser version of that. Now, it's not a flogging that I would ever volunteer to take. It was brutal, make no mistake about it, but it was not the type of flogging to bring you within an inch of death. And so the, stol- the soldiers, they do this and they, they create a crown of thorns, that famous crown of thorns that we see in pictures depicting Christ. It's that famous sharp crown that was twisted together using thorns that would be up to 12 inches long. A, a brutal, a brutal form of mockery for Jesus, the king of the Jews. And they also took a purple robe and they put it around and purple's the color of royalty. They were creating the most satirical, the most cruelly satirical presentation of Jesus Christ as a king. One that would debase him and make him suffer and mock him. And they bow down and they verbally praise him. Can you imagine the scene, these Gentiles bowing down to a, a, a Jewish rabbi and calling him the king of the Jews in a mocking tone as they beat him. I mean, this is, it's absurd on the one hand, but it's also profound on another hand when we consider the fact that Jesus became king not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Here we have Gentile pagan soldiers bowing down to the king, whether they know it or not, doing exactly what was owed to Christ. Although they did it out of disrespect, they spoke better than they knew. They declared Christ to be the king of the Jews. The book of Philippians says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. And these Gentiles, it's almost like they were the first trickle of that taking place. And even as they're doing this, they fulfill the passage that we read together this morning. And there was no mistake in choosing that. Isaiah 50, 5 and 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. Here is the king who would have the right to execute anybody who dared approach or encroach on his glory or his sovereignty or his honor. And yet it says that he gave his cheek to those who pull out the beard. He presented his back to those who would whip him. He did not even hide his face from the disgrace that they offered and the spitting that he would endure. A king who did not even hide himself from the shame of mockery because he knew that it was part of his redemptive work. Pilate declares Christ is innocent. So he allows this to happen. And then Pilate went out and said to them, I'm going to bring him out to you so that you will know that I find no guilt in him, which is a bit odd. You wonder why did he flog him if he found him guiltless? This is Pilate's strategy. Pilate knew he's done nothing wrong. I can't point to any evidence or any evil of any kind. And so he flogs him. And now why is this? He flogs him and he puts a a a painful crown on Christ's head and he puts this robe around him. He beats him and then he presents Jesus to the crowd again. Swollen, bruised, bleeding. Because remember, these are the guys who were worried about Christ causing disruption. So Pilate thinks, if I flog him, if I beat him and I present him uh, humbled and mocked, as a, as a foolish form of a king, they'll see how ridiculous their claim is. He was hoping to bring about some sympathy for Christ. 
some kind of uh, recognition of what the Jews were doing. Like, okay, maybe Pilate's right. He's obviously no threat. He is just a fool, and we can let it go. This is Pilate's strategy, uh, which is completely uh, falling on deaf ears. We have to recognize also that in the Passover feast, uh, God commanded Israel to take a lamb who was spotless. Why was that? Isn't that more costly? But God said, you will sacrifice a spotless lamb. Uh, We need to make no mistake. Isaiah 53 says that in him there was no violence and there were no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus is fulfilling the symbol of the spotless lamb. And even a Gentile spineless governor like Pilate can see that he is guiltless. And he says to them, behold the man. And we just sang that this morning, didn't we? Behold the man upon the cross. He draws attention to Christ. He says, look at him. And Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, beaten and bloody. And Pilate says, behold the man. And the Jews don't budge. It doesn't work. As I said, they're bent. They are bent on blood. They're bent on his crucifixion. The officers immediately cry out, crucify him. So Pilate brings him out and says, here's the man. And they say, very good. Now take him and crucify him. We have no interest in setting our eyes on him. We have no interest in setting him free. As Pilate already offered, I can release somebody to you because it's Passover. Who would you like? Do you want me to set Jesus free? And they say, no, give us Barabbas, the robber. And so they stick to that. Get him out of here. Crucify him. And what do they do? They actually present Pilate with their local law. Now, Pilate, again, was a prefect. He was sent to a region where there already was people who didn't necessarily belong to Rome, but Rome put him there to be in charge of and keep order in this region. And part of his responsibility was to enforce local law. Rome was a pluralistic society that tolerated the expression of other religions. And so if other religions were in place there, you had to recognize that part of Pilate's job was to keep regional order, which meant enforcing local laws. And the Jews knew this. And so what did they say? We have a law, Pilate, lest you forget. We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. The charge of blasphemy to defame God or to somehow soil his character or to make him lower than he really is. That's what blasphemy is. And if a man makes himself the son of God, it by definition would be blasphemous, wouldn't it? To say that God could somehow be expressed in the form of a man. It would be foolish for any one of us to think that we are anywhere close to an expression of who God is. It would be nothing short of blasphemous. And truly, they spoke rightly according to that law, he ought to die. They spoke rightly of Jewish law, that any man who claimed to be God or make himself like God was guilty of death because there there is no one like God. There is no man born who is like God uh, except one. And they happen to be looking at him. So what I find amazing about that is that they are bent on enforcing their own law and adhering to the law that God gave them. The law is very important to the Jews at the time, to the rulers of the time. They wanted to enforce the law, but the problem is they wanted adherence to the law without reference to or faith in God. To them, the law was just a means of power. 
It was just a means of autonomy. It was just a means of, I'm a big boy. I can keep the law. Israel wanted to be a big boy and keep its law, but they didn't want to submit themselves to God. Jesus said over and over to the, ruler, to the rulers, you are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look fantastic. And on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You're like a dish that is polished on the outside. And on the inside, it is too wretchedly dirty to take a drink of water from you. This is what Israel was doing. We have a law. But they did not submit to God in the application of that law. So hail king of the Jews is our first heading. Our second heading is under the heading, I have authority to release and to crucify. This is Pilate's declaration. This is a quote from Pilate. Because when they accused him of being the son of God or claiming to be the son of, the, of God, Pilate heard this statement and he was even more afraid. Why was he even more afraid? Because he already didn't want to crucify Jesus. He had a bad feeling about it. And when he found out that Christ claimed to be a son of God, he thought, I might be getting in over my head. What is, how powerful is this man? What is he going to do to me? He probably had superstitious pagan beliefs in sort of divine types of people who could pronounce curse on people or, or, or make their lives miserable in some way because they had some kind of divine connection. And he's looking at Christ and thinking, I already see him as something different. There's something about this guy that's a little bit different that I'm not quite sure about. And then they find out, he finds out that Jesus claimed to be the son of God. And he's really starting to tremble. He's really starting to wonder, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And we know that his wife, Pilate's own wife, warned him, don't have anything to do with this man. Because it's not going to be good for you. And so the conflict with the Jews is escalating. And despite the fact that Pilate had authority to judge, his fear of the Jews charge against him uh, pushes him into this kind of insecure posturing. He's afraid. And so he goes back in and he asks Jesus, where are you from? I, I, what's the deal with your claim? And, and maybe he's hoping Jesus will say, oh, don't worry. I'm, only, I'm just from Galilee. Like, I'm not, not the son of God. I'm just from Nazareth, you know. I'm just from Perth. I'm just from Smith Falls. Like, I'm nobody. Don't worry about it. Like, whatever they're saying... Just relax. Like he's probably hoping for something to soothe his fears. I'm just from Nazareth. You know, my dad was a carpenter. Um, you know, like nothing special here. And yet Jesus does not answer. Have you ever asked a question out of anxiety, desperate for some kind of soothing answer, and you get silence back, and all you're, you're just desperately hoping for something to anchor yourself in? But here's the thing, is that he's totally insecure. Pilate is totally... Um, posturing here. He's trying to intimidate Christ into giving him some type of control. He boasts about his authority. He says, where are you from? And, and, and Jesus doesn't answer. And Pilate says, will you not speak to me? And what he's saying here is, okay, you don't see who I am. And with such rich irony, he says, I have the power to release you. Oh, really? Then why has that not been done yet? He has tried to release Christ multiple times and has not yet done that. He has not accomplished what he says he has power to do. He is he's hypocritically posturing about his own authority. Don't you know that I have the power to release you and also the authority to crucify you? What he's saying is, Jesus, 
I'm holding out two options to you. You play ball with me, and I'll let you go. But if you don't want to play ball, it's a bad end for you. So Pilate is almost standing over Christ as if he has some kind of authority um, for, for Christ to submit to and ask for an outcome. But what's incredibly ironic here is that even as he's boasting about his authority, he's demonstrating his own weakness and his spineless governing. You know why? Because anybody who governs according to convenience or popularity or approval is weak. I will say that unequivocally. I believe that to be true. Anybody who governs for the approval of people rather than according to principles that are true, that is weakness. There is no strength in that. Sure, it's politically expedient and maybe it's savvy, but it is weak. And Pilate demonstrates his weakness because he's governing according to convenience and approval and status quo peace rather than the truth. And we saw when Jesus said, my kingdom is not from this world and I came to testify to the truth. What is Pilate's response? What is truth? What does that have to do with being a king? You can see how far from good leadership Pilate really is. You can see how far from a godly um, supervision Pilate is exerting. He has no concept of the relevance of truth to leading. And so his power is totally rooted in foolish, temporary things rather than the timeless um, element of truth. And so the Jews, um, the Jews basically prove <laughs> that Pilate is gutless and without any conviction in their taunt. Now, I'm going to come back to what Jesus said, but Jesus basically tells him, look, you want to talk to me about authority? My dad gave you the authority that you think you have. Are you kidding me? You're, you're coming to me and threatening me with your authority? My father gave you the authority that you have. The only reason you're a prefect or a governor is because my father saw fit to allow you to do that. So he exerts the power and sovereignty of his own father. And so the Jews respond, and we're going to come back to that. But the Jews, so Pilate says, okay, this guy is making claims that I cannot grapple with. I cannot wrestle with. I can't respond to what Jesus is saying. I have no answer for this. So Pilate hears that. It says, from that point on, Pilate sought to release him. He thought, I am so done with this guy. I I don't want to crucify him. I don't want to be guilty of that because he is making claims that are so threatening to my existence and to my way of seeing the world that I do not want to contradict or go against him. And so he seeks to release him which means that he went out again and he said to the Jews, I'm going to let this man go. You watch me. You watch me. I'm going to let him go. What did the Jews say? If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. The Jews are totally putting their thumbs over Pilate and saying, you will not have your way. And they taunt him and they prove how powerless Pilate really is. Because Pilate is governing according to principles given to him by man and by pragmatism. Pragmatism means you do what gives you the result that you want. You don't do what you know is the right thing. Aren't we so often guilty of that? That we make decisions according to a certain outcome that we think is healthy or good. In our relationships, in our marriages, in our parenting sometimes, at our jobs. We make a decision based on what we know will get us to that next phase that'll help us keep peace with a coworker, or maybe even keep a false peace with our spouse. 
We avoid saying what's true in favor of what will give us comfort. And this is how exactly how Pilate is governing. And the Jews prove it because they say, I know what you're after, Pilate. You're after being a friend of Caesar. You're just a prefect right now, but you'd like to climb the food chain in Rome, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you like Caesar to know how good a job you're doing at keeping order here so that he gives you charge of more land? And the Jews taunt him and they say, if you release him, you're no friend of Caesar. You're no friend of Caesar. Now, later on in history, this actually became a technical term. To be a friend of Caesar meant that you had Caesar's like seal of approval. You were one of Caesar's boys. You were like one of the big shots in the kingdom, in the empire. And, and so at this point, it might have been just sort of a, um, a colloquial phrase or, or something that would sort of describe what later became a very important thing to Roman prefects. You want to be a friend of Caesar. You want to check that box. It's like maybe getting the Order of Canada today. You're, you're in. You're approved. You're safe. It's like getting tenure. It's like, you have job security now, Pilate. Pilate was always governing according to, how can I stay in power? And so the Jews point out that you're governing according to convenience. You're governing because you want to be Caesar's friend, not because you want to do the right thing. And again, Jesus had made his own assessment of Pilate's authority, which was that it came from God, which is uh, incidentally the same place from where Jesus' authority came, right? He said, my kingdom is from uh, heaven. It's not from this world, which is the same place where Pilate's authority came from, which reminds us that the kingdom of God touches everything. It is sovereign over everything. There is not one molecule. There is not one space on this planet that does not act according to the governance of God's will. He is sovereign over everything. Jesus asserts the sovereignty of God, which sovereign is a title given to rulers who actually have power. Pilate was anything but sovereign, anything but. He was just trying to play the tune of somebody else and keep peace and make people happy. That is the opposite of sovereign. A sovereign says, this is my will, therefore it happens. God is proclaimed as the ultimate sovereign from the lips of Christ. It reminds us that not only these chaotic circumstances here belong to God, uh, but that all of history bows to the plans of God. And that's, again, that's how we're going to conclude and apply this text. And so they say to Pilate, everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And doesn't that make sense? If you have one sovereign in a nation and somebody else says, I'm a king, those two have a problem right? Because to claim to be a king claims to have authority. You can't say, oh, Jesus didn't come and just say, oh, I'm just a king of the spiritual realm. Don't worry, Caesar. You, you can have, you know, you can have the worldly system. You can have laws and you can have traditions and all that. I'm just the spiritual king of these people. That was never made by Christ. That might've set this whole thing in order where he, maybe Jesus could have just said, oh, that's just a figure of speech. It's just for people who follow me so that I'm like their personal king. Never said that, did he? He could have put an end to all of that by just saying, oh, I don't actually threaten Caesar's authority. Because what Christ claimed was that Caesar was subject to the king of kings and lord of lords. Even the emperor, the emperor of Rome, the Caesars and the kings of this world are all subject to Jesus Christ and must give an account to him. 
Christ is Lord over all. And so how does Pilate respond to this? He brought Jesus out and sat him on the, the judgment seat. So he said, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this out. I can't win with these people. Every time I turn around, they are proving that I cannot do anything that I want to do. Pilate is literally a puppet in the hands of the Jews at this point. And uh, John makes a reference to the time of day here, and we already covered that, so I'm not going to uh, revisit that. But I think what we're made to see is that because this was taking place correspondingly to the Passover feast, that Jesus is the Passover lamb given by God. And John the Baptist said this at the beginning of this book, didn't he? I'm sorry, in the book of Luke, where he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no confusion that Christ is that lamb, and John wants to make that clear. John actually does also say that in, in the beginning of his book. And so Jesus takes him out, and again, he says, Behold your king. I mean, Pilate, Pilate seems to understand. Something about this guy makes him the king of these people. And so Pilate brings him out and he says, this is your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. They do not care what the claims of Christ are. They do not care what Pilate's judgment is. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? This is a very serious thing for a nation to decide if they truly are the nation that they claim to be. So Pilate asks explicitly, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Which I think is the central verse of this text. I think this is the, this is the, the lynch point, the, the hinge point of this text. The Jews cry out, we have no king but Caesar. They are finally pushed to reject Jesus in the most explicit and clear terms possible. They know they're not just rejecting a rabbi. They know they're not just rejecting a teacher. They know they're not even just rejecting a prophet. They are rejecting the king by saying, maybe he is a king. Pilate says, this is your king. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. So it finally characterizes the, the ultimate blasphemy of the Jews, the ultimate sin of Israel for which they would be judged. God promises terrible destruction for the sin of rejecting uh, the anointed one. And I believe that that came in part when the temple was destroyed about 30 years later. God annihilated the Jewish nation at that point. Such deep and, and distressing judgment came upon Israel because of their cold-hearted and hard-hearted rejection of the anointed one. Israel, right at this moment, declares themselves to be a secular nation with no need for or love for God. They declare themselves secular by saying, our king is Caesar. Our king is Caesar, a pagan emperor. They declare themselves a secular nation with no need for or love of God. John covers this in the, in the first couple verses in the book. In John 1, 11, he says of Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. I think this is the declaration of nations today. 
It's the Declaration of Canada and the United States uh, expressly right now. We're seeing this in the West at an unprecedented level. We have no king but Caesar. And we talk and you, you hear an unending stream on the radio and on the news about um, mental illness and family breakdown and suicide rates and uh, instability and breaking down education. And we, we see the tenets of our nation falling apart correspondingly to our declaration that we have no king but Caesar. We have no king uh, but, a, but an earthly king. This is, the, this is the, the cry of our nations today. But rather than discourage or diminish the plans of God, it actually should quicken our effort to fulfill the mission of God. Why? Because Jesus said at the end of his uh, ministry to the disciples, you need now, because I have been given all authority, you need to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them everything that I have taught you. Isaiah 65 says, I was found by a people who did not seek me. I was found by people who did not seek me. As evangelists and as ambassadors for God, we don't go around and say, I mean, put your hand up if you want to know more about God. You may not see many hands go up. That does not diminish the authority that Christ has given us to proclaim the gospel and proclaim the lordship of Christ. Because we, he will be found by people who are not seeking him, by people who are not looking for him, by cities who say this. He will be found by them according to his word. And so I want to close by showing us the link between sovereignty and Jesus' rejection because these are the only words that Jesus speaks in this particular account. He says, uh, you would have no authority unless it had been given me, given you from above. What Jesus is saying is that my father is sovereign. Nothing is outside of his control. And at the same time, we see God's people rejecting the king that he has sent and crucifying him. Uh, this, the, the quote from the pro prologue that I just read helps us see that the theme of rejection is important to the work of Christ and to the theology of his lordship because it's included right at the beginning of the book. Hey, just a spoiler alert, the light is going to come, the king is going to come, but the people are going to reject him. It sort of seems like, a, like, why are you telling us that it's not a happy ending right from the get-go? The issue of Jewish rejection became an important part of the Christian apologetic in the first century, which means it became an important part of how they saw who they were. Apologetic just means like a reason for their confidence. Because if the anointed one was rejected by his own people, what makes all these Christians so confident that they belong now to God? And so the New Testament actually becomes very clear about what relationship Israel now has to God and, and what the consequences are of their rejection of him. What this became, it became an important um, platform to prove that Christianity was not just an offshoot or a subset or some smaller cult of Judaism. It wasn't just like a modification of Judaism. But the Christian nation, the Christian people, the church, would actually become the true locus, the true location, the true center of who God's people were. They weren't like a secondary set of people. They were God's people. 
through Jesus Christ. The, the, the Bible says that there became no distinction between Jew or Gentile. They became the people of God. And the story that they were telling, although it was hard to grasp, was that God's own people rejected their Messiah, which led to an outpouring of his spirit upon not just believing Israel, because lots of Jews did believe, right? Lots of Jews did. Many Jews believed in the Messiah and received the Holy Spirit and and new life. But also, the Spirit was poured out on all nations. This is why in the book of Acts, every time a Gentile family came to know the Lord, they had to be brought before the Jews, laid hands on, and the Spirit would fill them, and they would often speak in tongues to prove to the Jews God is really with these people. Even though you're like, no, 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 we're the Jews. God's with us. The, Peter and Paul and the other apostles w- were very intentional about showing God, no, God is really with these people. They're not just pretending. They're not just hallucinating. God has poured his spirit out on them as well as you. They are partakers in the blessing as well as you. In Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 19, there's a parable that Jesus tells the rulers in Israel, and it's the parable of the wicked tenants where God made a vineyard. He rented it out to vine keepers and then he sent his servants to come and collect fruit. Isaiah chapter five tells us the story about God planting the vineyard. He does a beautiful job at preparing it to be a fruitful vineyard. But then when the servants come to collect fruit, to collect uh, the tax on the rental, the owners kill, they beat and they kill all of the servants. Those servants are the prophets that kept going back to Israel to say, come back to God, come back to God, bear the fruit of repentance. John was the final of those prophets. And yet then the the vineyard owner says, well, I'm going to uh, send my son. They'll respect him. Well, guess who that is? It's Jesus Christ. The son comes to Israel and says, now will you turn to God and be restored? And they say, if we kill him, the inheritance will be ours. That's what it's all about. The Jews said, we want to be sovereign in the kingdom. We don't want the son ruling. We're going to kill him. And then Jesus asks them, what is that owner going to do? And they say, uh, he's going to kill those miserable wretches. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. And he's going to give the vineyard to others. That's exactly what happened when the Jews rejected Jesus. The kingdom was given to the Gentiles. That's the story of God's redemption. As Israel rejected God turned his favor and his outpouring of blessing to all nations. I believe that the final restoration of Israel will be as an outpouring of faith in Jesus Christ. And nothing short of that will restore anybody to God. And so I just want to take you on a very short tour through Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11. Uh, But Romans chapter 9 verse 5 Paul acknowledges that to Israel belongs the patriarchs, which means belongs the heritage, the commands, uh, the blessings of God. According to the flesh, even Christ belongs to them because Jesus came through the line of Judah, a tribe of Israel. Very much so, the Messiah belonged to the Jews. The Bible says that he came first to his own people. He came first and offered salvation to Israel. The very next verse says, not all descendants of Israel are children of Abraham. Not everybody who was born into Israel became a child of Abraham, which was to be a child of God. And then he goes on in 9.24 to say, even us who he called, this is Paul speaking, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then in quotes, those who were not my people, I will call my people. This is from a quote from the Old Testament. 
And then in 931, Paul says, Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, which is exactly why when they said to Pilate, we have a law. They did not succeed in that law because they did not pursue it by faith. It is impossible to apply God's law correctly without faith. Because by the letter, they were correct, right, in applying that law. They said, we have a law, and this man should die because he made himself a son of God. Well, implicitly in that, what if it actually was the son of God who claimed to be the son of God? Then the law clearly would not apply to that person. They were unable to apply the law because Jesus was the son of God. They were unable because they had no faith to apply the law. And then in Romans uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, I just have to read it because it's a couple verses. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that they may be saved, speaking of Israel. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then in verse 12 in chapter 10, he says, There is now no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the promise of the gospel, even according to and in the midst of Jesus' own rejection. So what is the end of all this? That in history, God's own people who waited and waited for a Messiah crucified him instead of receiving him. But this did not thwart God's plan. It did not stop his plan. In fact, it completed and accomplished it. In the rejection of Jesus through the Jews, God uses them to bring salvation to the world. What's the very next verse in John chapter 1, verse 11 and 12? It says, to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. So his own did not receive, but anybody who did receive him became a child of God. And then in Romans chapter 11, Paul sums up this theology by saying, so they too have now been disobedient, they being the Jews, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. That's Romans chapter 11, 31 and 33. So my friends, that's good news. God demonstrated to Israel that they needed to be saved. It says that he consigned all to disobedience. He would not allow Israel to enthrone Jesus Christ without first dealing with their sin, which is why he went to the cross instead of straight to the throne like they wanted to do. Jesus was not going to hold up their earthly kingdom. He was going to come and establish a kingdom of his own according to his own righteousness. And so the good news to us is that you do not need spiritual qualification. You do not need a heritage. You do not need a family name. You do not need moral quality, intellectual strength, social popularity, wealth, or anything else to become a child of God. You need nothing. 
Jesus proved that when Israel, who had every blessing in God, still rejected his Messiah. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had the traditions. They had the miracles and the experiences. They had everything God could offer in an earthly sense, and yet they rejected the Messiah. What does that tell you? It is of no benefit to the flesh, the accomplishments of the flesh. It's of no benefit to keep the law. Paul also says that if you try to keep one part of the law, you have to keep the whole thing. You're not going to achieve the righteousness of God through your own obedience. So how does this teach us to proclaim the gospel? You teach people that they must simply call on the name of the Lord. How often people say, oh, I left the church a long time ago. I've never been to church. Oh, I'm so bad. You wouldn't. God, God can save anybody else, but he cannot save me. Wrong. We need to tell people that only by faith they can lay hold of the righteousness of God through the spotless King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the world cries out, we have no king, we know that Jesus Christ is over them. He rules over the whole world. He's been given a name above every other name that is to be named in heaven or on earth. Christ is subject to none, which means that he is already reigning, which means when we proclaim the gospel to people, we say every tongue will confess. You can either meet Christ in fearful judgment or you can meet him in the clouds and reign with him. How would you like to react and interact with the king of kings? Because there are two options before everybody. It's not a matter of what you can do for the king. It's all about what the king has done for you. That's what we need to stress when we proclaim the gospel. When people declare we have no king but Caesar, it's to put man on the throne. But we recognize that Christ, not man, is king. And that is our declaration. And I pray that gives you confidence as you share the gospel. that It's not what I did to become a child of God. It's not what you can do to become a child of God. It's what God has done for you in Christ.